Thank you, and once again, good morning to you, students and teachers of the Word of God. We hope you'll have time to study with us a while today in the broadcast, as today is broadcast, the ninth broadcast of the Theological Seminar of the Air, takes up a discussion of the names of God and the fatherhood of God and the silence of God. Our first series of studies, quite naturally, are in the realm of theology, the study of God, properly speaking, and later on we'll talk about Christology, the study of Christ, soteriology, the study of salvation, homotiology, the study of sin, anthropology, the study of man, and related subjects as they deal with the Word of God. All the lessons, of course, we're dealing with Bible doctrines on the Theological Seminar of the Air. Our lesson this week deals with the names, fatherhood, and silence of God. In previous broadcasts, we've learned about the existence of God, the proofs for his existence, about his nature and his unity and trinity, his communicable and incommunicable attributes. In Bible lands, names have had and continue to have significance to them uh, in relation to the Word of God. And in a study of the names of God, we can learn many things about God in his self-revelation of himself. And after all, God is not the subject of microscopic scrutiny, nor is God the subject of the efforts of men to dig into the bathosphere, into the deep, or the abyss, nor is God the subject of men's efforts to climb up to Mount Everest or gaze into the vast recesses of the universe with uh, astronomic equipment. God is not the subject of scientific investigation. The stupid scientists who suppose he is only manifest their stupidity. God is the subject of revelation. And where God doesn't reveal himself, no amount of scientific endeavor will ever prove anything. The Lord does not subject himself to the physical stupidity of physical men and the physical scientists. After all, God is a spirit. And after all, the things that are appear do not uh, appear the things that are made, according to the correct atomic theory of the writer of Hebrews, written 1,800 years before Einstein was born. We never have to worry about these stupid scientists and stupid astronomers and stupid physicists and stupid psychiatrists and stupid physiologists getting ahead of us in the Word of God. Any man that has the Word of God is always considerably ahead of them, always has been, and of course, naturally, always will be. In dealing with things spiritual that cannot be seen and tested in the microscope and through the telescope, we are dealing with God's revelation of himself to man. Man is the object of God's scrutiny, not vice versa. The names of God found in the Bible are found in three forms, what we call primary names, compounds with the Hebrew word El, and compounds with the tetragrammaton, which is called Jehovah. In the Hebrew, since the Masoretic vowel points for Jehovah or Adonai, the word is unpronounceable uh, from the standpoint of English because nobody's ever heard the name pronounced. The name was considered too sacred to be pronounced, so we have transliterated it properly in the Old Testament as Jehovah. This is translated in the King James Bible as capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And many times it refers to God the Father, and many times, of course, it refers to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Jehovah of Jehovah's, according to Revelation chapter 19. The King of Kings and capital L, capital O, capital R, capital DS, of capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, capital S. In the primary word, we have one word only, such as El, or Elah, or Elohim, or Jehovah, or Adon, or Adonai, or God, or Lord. Then we have compounds, two words used together, with El, such as Almighty God, which is uh, El Elohim. We have the Most High God. We have the Everlasting God. And then compounds with Jehovah, the Lord God, Jehovah, the Everlasting God, and so forth and so on. 
Now, I'm going to give you 14 names of God used in the Old Testament. First of all, from the uh, Hebrew Old Testament text, and then the English translation. All right, the first of these is in Genesis 2.4. This word is the most common word for God in the Old Testament, Elohim. It is a compound word and clearly points out the Godhead of Father, Son, and Spirit, Elohim, a plural word. It can, can be translated as gods when dealing with the gods that uh, oppose God the Father. And it's very significant to know that the Lord says the gods that have not created the heavens and the earth, they shall perish from under the heavens and the earth. So the contemporary bunk we hear from von Däniken, the contemporary bunk from the modern UFO writers, and the contemporary bunk that we get from the intraterrestrial pyramid writers, and the contemporary bunk we get from many of the followers of Judge Rutherford and Pastor Russell, is the contemporary bunk that it was God who created the heavens and the earth, which, of course, is against the clear, explicit, definite statement of the Word of God, that the gods who have not made heaven and earth shall perish from under the earth. And the Lord said, I am God, there is none beside me, I know not any, and there is no other Savior. The Christian who has doubts about these things should spend some time studying Isaiah chapter 41 to Isaiah 48. Isaiah 41 to Isaiah 48. The first word, Elohim, means the one who is mighty, or the Lord who creates. Then we have another name for God, El Elyon, Genesis 14:22 the one who is supreme, the Lord who owns. We have Adonai in Genesis 15, 2, the Lord our master, the one who is ruling. We have El Olam in Genesis 21, 33, the Lord who reveals himself, the one who is mysterious. We have Jehovah Jireh, Genesis 22:14, the Lord who provides. Uh, Jehovah Rapha, or Rapha in Exodus 15:26, the one who heals. Jehovah Nisi, Exodus 17:15 the Lord our banner, Jehovah Yedkadiah, the Lord who sanctifies, in Exodus 31.13, Jehovah Shalom, the Lord our peace, in Judges 6.24, the Lord of Saboath, or Sabaoth, in Hebrew Saboath, 1 Samuel 1.3, the Lord of hosts, Jehovah Sidkenu, the Lord our righteousness, in Jeremiah 23.6, Jehovah Shammah, uh, the Lord our Oh, the one close by, the one present. All right, that's in Ezekiel 48:35. We have Jehovah Ilion, Psalm 7:17, the one who is blessing, the Lord our blesser, and Roy, uh, Psalm 23:1, Jehovah our shepherd. Uh, also, you use by the name in the Hebrew. Now, these are 14 titles given to the God of the Old Testament. They do not represent 14 gods from outer space flying around flying saucers who don't have enough sense to blow the nose in a windy day. In regard to the UFO occupants who are always worried about getting water and electricity, let it, may be st let it be stated without any point of controversy or point of contention, there isn't one single angel in the Bible or false god that have to waste five minutes getting electrical charge from anybody. The peculiar obsession that the modern UFO writers have that the occupant of Ezekiel chapter 1 in the unidentified flying object was a flying saucer occupant is really just too funny for words, if not downright stupid, to anybody who knows the Word of God. Did anybody see what the UF occupant said in Ezekiel 1? It's interesting, isn't it? There are a bunch of deluded people, just as, I mean, bananas, brother, just as sick as they can be mentally, talking about the occupant of Ezekiel 1 and Ezekiel 10 being a UFO occupant of a flying saucer, while totally disregarding what he said. Did you ever what he read what he said that's recorded in Ezekiel 1, 2, and 3? 
makes interesting reading, doesn't it? Did you ever hear one of the gods from outer space that talked that way? I never did. I read uh, Damsky's trip to Venus and what he said, somebody said to him, they didn't talk like that fellow did in Ezekiel 1, 2, and 3. Did you ever stop thinking how ridiculous this is? These poor deluded sinners trying to make UFO gods and occupants out of the one that came down on the sideline and talked to Moses? Tell me something, stupid. When was the last time you ever heard of a UFO occupant who set up an absolute moral standard? We have a couple of fellows up here in Pasadena, Mississippi, that profess to have been taken board a UFO and talked to by the occupants. I don't remember telling them, them telling these two fellows that God would restore Israel with Christ and the throne of David, do you? It's interesting, isn't it? How these poor deluded people go on year after year after year trying to pattern gods after their own hallucinations and finally assume that if anybody came down from heaven and spoke to anybody in the Bible, it must have been some nut in a flying saucer. Why, the nuts and the flying saucer don't talk like the occupants did on these other uh, ships. Why, not once, not once do you ever hear of an occupant of a UFO telling somebody, Thou shalt not commit adultery, and thou shalt have no other gods before me. Why, I understand the vast body of literature in UFOs, which I have, at least better than 27 words in the subject, the occupants of UFOs are deists and relatives who believe that God is the force field of energy in the universe, just like Albert Einstein or any unsaved sinner with a college education. I don't recall the UFO occupants ever said anything about uh, Jesus Christ coming to restore Israel and overthrowing the United Nations. That doesn't sound like UFO talk. I read the speeches supposedly produced under hypnotic suggestion by the people who've seen UFOs and boarded them and then talked to them by the spacecraft operators in Nebraska and various places. I don't recall where any UFO occupant ever made any remarks about the Lord Jesus Christ coming back to overthrow Rome. That's what you find in Revelation 17. There seems to be a vast difference between the God that reveals himself in the Bible and the God that reveal themselves on flying saucers. Quite a gap, old boy. Old chap and all that sort of rot, don't you know? There are 14 names of God in the Old Testament. They all apply to Jehovah God, the Trinity, manifest as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now we come to the fatherhood of God. The Israelite was taught to pray, Our Father which art in heaven, Matthew 6, 9, in distinction from the Gentile gods. And in Matthew chapter 6, when Jesus Christ taught the Old Testament Jew under the law to pray, Our Father which art in heaven, of course he taught him the corporate prayer of a nation who had been called out by God as God's Son. You will notice that no individual in the Old Testament is ever called the Son of God or a Son of God unless they are a created angel without blood. There is no such thing in the Old Testament as a Son of God in the New Testament sense. In the New Testament sense, the Son of God is a sinner who has received Jesus Christ. For as many as received him, to them he gave power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Notice carefully in the Old Testament, no individual is ever called a Son of God. The nation corporately of Israel is called sons and daughters in Isaiah, and the nation corporately as a unit is called my firstborn son. You'll find that over in Exodus chapter 2, 3, and 4. But at no time are individual Israelites, such as David and Moses, ever referred to as sons of God. The sons of God in the Old Testament from Job 1 and Job 2 and Job 38 and Genesis 6 are plainly angelic beings, but have neither flesh nor blood, nor can they be born again. 
Therefore, one should get the distinction immediately between the disciples' prayer of Matthew 6-9, which speaks of God as a corporate father, our father, and the individual Christian of whom it is said he's received the spirit of adoption, whereby he cries, Abba, Father, Romans chapter 8. The Christian never prays, Our Father, in individual prayer, but My Father, Holy Father, and Father. Israel did not have a personal consciousness of sonship, as God is My Father. Israel, uh, as it stood, had God as their corporate father, as a nation chosen of God to be God's firstborn son. Now, I realize that's a very heavy dose for you people who've only had four years of college and six years of seminary. I realize that's a terrible dose for some of you fellows to craft that have blown your money down a rat hole and wasted your money on a Christian education that taught you no more about the Bible than somebody like Madeline Murray O'Hare, Edgar Casey. I apologize. I'm very sorry. It's very unfortunate for you. But once you gave up that Bible for the traditions of men, and once you began to follow the Greek and the Hebrew instead of the English, you got yourself in a rock, and you got yourself in a false rock, and between a rock and a hard place, there's not the rock of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Our Father has never been the Lord's Prayer, never will be the Lord's Prayer, and it is certainly not the prayer of any Christian listening to my voice. Our Father is the prayer Jesus Christ recommended, recommended to circumcised Jewish disciples under the law who kept the Sabbath, abstained from pork, and worshipped in the temple. You may have noticed, if you were a careful reader in Matthew chapter 5 and 6, that those Jews under the law were bringing their gift to an altar in the temple. I suppose you noticed that, didn't you? It might pay to look it up. All these little silly sermons of the Mount trying to apply them to Christian are just what they are, plain silliness. The word Christian doesn't occur anywhere in your Bible until Acts chapter 11. Did you look it up? Then don't get mad with this Bible teacher. Don't get upset. Don't show your stupidity. Look it up. You couldn't find a Christian in Matthew 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 with a flashlight. And who doesn't know that for some of you educated professing Christians who read so much junk it's coming out your ears and the book has gone out of your heart. Our Father which art in heaven has never been the Lord's Prayer. If it was the Lord's Prayer, the Lord would have been praying Our Father. And if Jesus had prayed Our Father, he would have classified himself with a sinner. The Lord's Prayer is in John 17, where Christ never calls God the Father our Father, but my Father and Holy Father. Never our Father. Our Father, Matthew 6, 9, is a prayer of a Jewish disciple under the law who is the member of a nation corporately that has God for their Father. The prayer then as it stands is a prayer given to Old Testament saints under the law, Jewish saints under the law, and these Jews, of course, are Sabbath-observing, pork-abstaining, temple-worshipping Jews. The Jew had God as his father in a poetic and national sense. First of all, in a poetic sense, like in Psalm 68.5. Where we read in Psalm 68.5, a father of the fatherless and a judge of the widows is God in his holy habitation. But in the doctrinal sense, only as a nation under God. Exodus 4, verse 22, And thou shalt say to Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. So no individual is right to about the fatherhood of God from an individual consciousness, an individual relationship, but rather as a national relationship. And this is where we find, why we find the plural, our Father, which art in heaven. You will notice that in Matthew chapter 6, if you study it carefully, that the father of the fatherhood of Israel, Israel being 
God's child, is set in violent contrast to the Gentiles. As a matter of fact, a careful reader of Matthew 5 and 6 will see that throughout, if there's one thing that's clear, it's that God is not the father of any Gentile. Now, I realize that may sound like racial discrimination to some of you religious bigots, but that's the Scripture. And with the Scripture speak, we're not particularly interested in your convictions anyway. The Bible said, after all these things the Gentiles seek, but your Father know you have need of these things. Notice Christ constantly contrasts the uh, Jew as a child of God corporately and nationally under the Father, the Father of the nation, with the Gentiles who have no Father as a group. Israel did not have a personal conscience of sonship, such as God is my Father. And, of course, the born-again child of God has that in Jesus Christ. Modernism reasons God is my Father, and my Father will not harm me, so I'll just do what I want to do, and he'll be merciful to me to the end, which, of course, is highly presumptuous and false reasoning. The modern God of America will put up with anything. Therefore, the modern God of America, as he stands, is a moral and a spiritual pervert. Christ never hinted for a moment that God was anybody's father, but rather said, Year of your father the devil, and the lust of your father you will do. John 8, 44. A God who can put up with anything is a spiritual pervert, and the man who invented him is just as perverted as he is. A God who loves filth and righteousness and all these things together in one group of righteousness and truth and honesty and loving kindness, the same way he loves fornication, bestiality, and adultery, as we've said before and we'll say again, a moral pervert and created after the mind of a man who is perverted. God is the creator of all, but only the father of those that are in the family. In 2 Corinthians 6, verse 17 and 18, we read, Wherefore come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord God. Separate, not mixed up, separated. Separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and you shall be a fa- and will be a father unto you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Notice the Lord doesn't say one thing there about receiving anybody as a son or a daughter until they come out from the world system and receive him. There is no reception of the sinner and adoption of the sinner into the family of God until that sinner separates himself from the world by the final act of receiving the Lord Jesus Christ as his personal Savior. And notice the expression, touch not the unclean thing. In the Bible, you have clean things and unclean things, dirty things and clean things. There is no such thing in the Bible as this uh, great... uh, uh, integrated, uh, amalgamated, synthesized, relative thing where there's no difference between good and evil. In the Bible, there's a difference between good and evil and clean and unclean. The clean things are listed and the unclean things are listed, clearly pointing out the horrible, dreaded absolutes that set up the standard for the sinner and make him aware of the fact that he is not clean and he is not holy and needs to be born again. Some of you have reached the place, of course, where you cannot distinguish between clean and unclean because a defiled conscience, which the Bible speaks of, and a defiled imagination reaches the place where it can no longer discriminate between two different things that are different, good and bad, dirty and clean. Some of you liberals are so liberal you can't even tell the difference anymore, and some of you are so liberal you think the clean is unclean and the unclean is clean. I mean, there's nothing like a defiled conscience here with a hot iron to twist your standards, is there? And I will receive you, 2 Corinthians 6:18, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Nowhere does God ever imply that he'll accept any son or any daughter who is in a separated person who leave the system he's in and trusts God's only begotten Son as the Savior and becomes a child of God through receiving God's Son, who is separate, undefiled, harmless, 
high of the heavens, who came down to die for sinners. Now, as a father, God gives life to his children, so there's no sonship without the new birth. The Bible said, He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. As a father, God bestows love in his children to those in the family of God. Hence be read, He that believeth hath everlasting life, but outside the family, he that believeth not shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him, and so they're called in Ephesians 2, by nature, children of wrath. In Romans 9, vessels of destruction fitted for destruction. In Ephesians 2, dead in trespass and sin. In Matthew chapter 23, children of hell. Now, that doesn't sound much like TM and the gurus, does it? You see what a radical book the Bible is? There's no book as radical and revolutionary as the Word of God. And there's nothing any zippy, hippie, moony, commie, or yippy ever thought up in his life could come anywhere near it. The Bible is the only book that dares look you right in the face and says if you do the best you can, you'll wind up in a lake of fire. It's the only book that dares say it. It says all our righteous are as filthy rags, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Every man in his best state is altogether vanity. There's not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. Now, that's the difference between the Holy Scripture and the Oriental Scriptures. The Scriptures of other religions are always mealy-mouthed and always pussyfoot around it and don't dare tell the truth about it. The truth is, my friend, with a dead nature and a defiled conscience and a conscience here with a hot iron, your conscience ain't going to take you anywhere. And the truth is, with your self-righteous egotism that you've developed and cultivated over the years by saying everything is relative and setting yourself up as the final authority and everything else is relative, you have made yourself a god in your own eyes, and you're just good as in hell with the door shut and the key thrown away. Now, that's the horrible truth of the matter. And the reason why people go shopping for religions around the world and study comparative religion and comparable religions to pick out the one that will least offend them is because Bible Christianity always has been and still is and will always be the most offensive, negative, destructive, critical abuse that man has ever received. The same God who said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see a God, said, You serpents, you generation of vipers, how can you escape the damnation of hell? When David said, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, that same shepherd said, You're of your father the devil, and thus your father will do. He's a liar from the beginning, and because I tell you the truth, why don't you hear me? He that is of God heareth God's word. You hear them not, because you're not a God. That same God that said, Charity covers all sins, charity endeth not, charity is kind, charity is not puffed up, said all liars shall have their part in the lake which would burn it with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now, isn't that something? Have they say out in the world? Isn't that something? That same God that some of you people fish around and mess around with in the Sermon on the Mount and Psalm 23 and 1 Corinthians 13 spoke the words found in Matthew 23 and John 9, which you haven't even looked at. The God who said, Be kind, love one another, for love is of God. The God that said, We ought to love one another and love your neighbor. That God said... For a pretense you make long prayers, you whitewashed sepulchers that appear outwardly righteous unto men, but inside are full of dead men's bones all hypocrisy. You serpents, you generation of vipers, how can you escape the damnation of hell? Depart from me, you cursed and everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. 
Now, I bet you haven't read that in any Bible study recently, have you? You bet your booties you haven't. You're dealing with professional liars. And they never give you the whole truth. They give you two-thirds. It is as, as, as a father that God hears and answers the prayers of the born-again believer, sifting the requests as a true father. It is as a father that God adopts into his family the born-again child of God as one of his sons. But there isn't a case found anywhere in the Bible from kiver to kiver where God Almighty ever treated as a son a Bible-rejecting, Christ-defying, self-righteous, religious egotist. Of those people, he said, how can you escape the damnation of hell? So the fatherhood of God in the Bible is one thing, and the fatherhood of God taught out in the world by the religious politicians is, as we say down south, something else. They're no kin. There's nothing similar between the God presented in the Word of God and the God presented by the modern religious liberal. I don't care how many scriptures he quotes, he's only quoting the positive scriptures to present a positive God who wouldn't damn anybody, and that's not the God of Revelation. That's the piecemeal God revealed by taking Psalm 23 and the Sermon on the Mount and 1 Corinthians 13 out of their context. And a text without a context is a pretext, a bunch of presumptuous, vulgar, obscene, blasphemous nonsense. Now, here today we've studied very briefly the fatherhood of God and listed the 14 names of God as he has revealed himself in the Word of God. For those of you who believe in the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man, all we can say is hell is full of that kind of religion, and when you get there you'll see that many people are there, and many people are there who believe in the fatherhood of God and brotherhood of man, and they were all brothers that had a great bond of affinity. They were all dead in trespass and sin, and all went to hell together. You'll find, too, that if you receive the Lord Jesus Christ, your Savior, and trust a sinless, perfect, righteous man instead of a sinner, that God will give you his imputed righteousness, Romans chapter 4, chapter 8, adopt you into the family, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 to 10, and own you as his child and confess you as his child. And you can truly say, not our Father which art in heaven, but my Father, Father my father. As one whom his father pities, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. And by receiving Christ, we receive the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. For as many as are led by the Spirit, they are the sons of God. We trust this lesson has been a blessing to you, and next week at the same time we'll talk about the silence of God. The reason my prayers go unanswered. The silence of God will be our subject next week at the same time. Until the Lord, until then, may the Lord bless you and good morning.